We're continuing this morning with a uh, series of messages that we actually started five weeks ago, and I know that some of you are kind of walking in this morning for the first time, and you're thinking, great, I missed the first four, Um, and you did, but uh, let me kind of contextualize it a little bit for you so you're kind of up to speed, at least somewhat. What we're talking about in this series, and it's a series out of the book of Acts, but what we're talking about in this series is what it is that Jesus is doing in the world today. And we've said that what Jesus is doing in the world today is he is building the kingdom of God, that that is his goal, that is his project, that is his dream, and that, and absolutely not anything less than that, is the vision of Christ. Which means, as we've talked about, that the vision of Jesus is much, much bigger than just, and just is a big word, the vision of a redeemed people. It's more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's more than just a made clean group of people. It's more than just a made new group of people. It's more than just a made whole and made one group of people. The vision of Christ includes that. It's a part of it, but it's even more. The vision of Jesus is the vision of a redeemed absolutely everything. It is the vision of a new heaven. It is the vision of a new earth that is then inhabited by this entirely new people, people who have been made new through faith in Christ. We've been talking about the fact that that is what Christ is doing in the world today, that that is what Jesus is moving us towards. And secondly, we've been saying every single week that that is what you and I have the privilege of engaging in. In other words, Jesus is building the kingdom of God in this world, and he wants to do it through me, and he wants to do it through you. That's what we've been saying. And we've been getting a lot of great feedback. I mean, I kind of feel like we were on a roll at least for the first three weeks. We spent the first three weeks talking about, okay, this is how he does it, and talking about this is what we need to do, and just sort of trying to get everybody on the bus. And we got a lot of people on the bus all of a sudden. I mean, we got all these people calling us and emails and phone calls, and here's how, you know, Jesus wants to build the kingdom through me in this season of my life. People are picking up the find your thing, do your thing packets, and they're working through the surveys, and they're figuring out how God has wired and gifted them and equipped them right now to build God's kingdom. And so we had all this momentum going into last week, and then if you were here last week, you know, the bus sort of got parked at the station, I think, a little bit, because Luke, our tour guide, the guy who wrote this book of Acts, got on the bus, and he said, okay, guys, here's the deal. We're going to drive out of the bus station here in a second. Everybody's on the bus, and we're going to go out and build the kingdom of God, but before we do, i got to let you know something. It's not going to be easy. And in fact, at times, there are going to be trials. There are going to be difficulties. There will even be suffering for the building of the kingdom of God. And let's just be honest, all right? That's not what we're looking for in life. Now, if there was a sign-up sheet in the back and it was sign up for some suffering, you know, nobody would sign that up. You just, you wouldn't go there, okay? It's ridiculous. I mean, most of us fashion our whole lives so as to mitigate against trials, so as to foresee and stop difficulties before they show up on our door, so as to do everything that we can to insulate ourselves against suffering. And guess what? That's smart. There's nothing wrong with that unless it prevents you from engaging in the building of God's kingdom. Now, all of a sudden, there's a conflict of interest. All of a sudden, there's a real problem. Because building of the kingdom of God is not easy. Sometimes trials, difficulties, even suffering, that's what it takes. And what I like about Luke is he doesn't wait for us to kind of get on the bus and pull out, you know, and start building the kingdom of God and then run into all these unexpected problems like, oh my goodness, and then he'll walk up and go, well, you know, I meant to tell you about this. He doesn't do that. 
He says, look, we're, we're about to pull out. This is what we're about to go do. And you need to know up front, it's not always going to be easy. But that's not all that he said. The part that we really need to drill down on is the second part of the message. He said, look, building the kingdom of God is not going to be easy. But then he said, but it always and always is really important. It always ends in glory. Why does it always end in glory? Because it follows the pattern of Jesus, the one to whose image we are being conformed to. And what is that pattern? It's the pattern of one who lived to build the kingdom of God, one who suffered and died to build the kingdom of God, one who was buried and passed through three days of death to build the kingdom of God, one who, and this is where glory starts happening, okay, rose from the dead for the building of the kingdom of God, who ascended into heaven and who sits in glory eternal glory, on the throne of the universe and from which he by his Holy Spirit is building his kingdom right here, right now, through people who are awake to his spirit and to his spirit's kingdom building activities. And he will continue to do that through wide awake people until he comes again, bringing the kingdom of God in all of its fullness and answering for us the very prayer that he teaches us to pray, which in part says this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus Christ is building the kingdom of God and he wants to build it through you and I, but it won't be easy. However, it will end in glory. And it's like that's such an important message that Luke shows us this over and over and over again. And he's going to show it to us again today. In Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where we read this, it says, About that time Herod, the king, hang on to that, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And that sounds a little bit like suffering to me. And it is. And it's also kind of a new development and a huge problem. See, up until now, if you've been following along in the book of Acts, the Christian community had been persecuted terribly, but they had been persecuted only by the Jews. Now, that was a big deal because pretty much everybody was Jewish. So that's a problem. But here it gets even worse because all of a sudden now the Roman government, by way of Herod, is getting involved in the action. Everyone is against them now. And Herod's motivations are a little bit different. They're not religious so much as they are political. This guy Herod that Luke is telling us about here is Herod Agrippa I. And it's a little bit confusing, I think, as you read through the New Testament because you encounter the name Herod over and over and over again. And it's Herod did this and Herod said that and they took him before Herod and Herod killed and Herod chopped off his head and Herod and Herod. And, you know, and if you're not careful, you become tempted to think they're all one guy. They're not one guy, but they are all descendants of one guy, a man whose name was Herod the Great. And that is the Herod that was alive at the birth of Christ. That's the Herod, if you know the Christmas story, that you know the, the Magi came following the star. You remember, they come to Jerusalem, and they come into the palace of Herod the Great, and they say, hey, where is the one born king of the Jews? Which is not what Herod the Great wants to hear, because he had been given the title king of the Jews, and he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a son of Esau. So he knew, they're not talking about me. And he set about trying to kill Jesus while he was just an infant. You know the Christmas story. You know the deal. Well, this man that we're dealing with today, Herod Agrippa I, is his grandson. And like his grandfather, he also was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Empire. And just as his grandfather ran into trouble with that title, so did he. I mean, the reality is this guy, Herod Agrippa I, 
is only about half Jewish. And so you can understand, I think, how the Jewish people could resent that. It's like, wait a minute, the Roman Empire is making him our king. He's not even one of us. And so his life had some trials, some difficulties in his rulership. Maybe suffering, I don't know. But the deal is, he always was looking for ways to try to mitigate against that, to try to gain the favor of these people that he, you know, had to govern over. I mean, any time he could throw them a bone, he did. And what he discovered in the Christian community was a common enemy. In other words, by persecuting believers, he made the people over which he was king happy. And it was a devastating blow to the believers. And Luke tells us that. It says, about that time, here the king laid violent hands, okay? So he's not holding back on some who belong to the church because, well, building the kingdom of God isn't always easy. And then he says something that's really traumatic. He says, he killed James, the brother of John. Now, James, the brother of John, is one of the Lord's most intimate disciples, if you know the story. I mean, Jesus had this huge multitude that followed him, right? And then there was a smaller multitude within the multitude. And then you narrowed it down and narrowed it down, narrowed it down to the 12 who we all know about. But even within the 12, there were three. Peter, James, which is this man, and his brother John. This man was one of the most visible leaders of the church. If anybody would have been thought to have been sort of untouchable in some sense, it would have been him. But apparently not. It says, now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, which is just another way, by the way, of saying that he cut off his head. And if you're not following along with what I'm trying to describe for you today, if you're not understanding the kind of glory that I'm talking about and that Luke is talking about, then, then maybe you're not getting this. And you might be thinking at this point, well, I guess that his suffering didn't end in glory because it seems to me he lost his head in the deal. And he did. And yet his suffering ended in glory. Where did James go when he died? Where is James now? James is with the Lord. James is in heaven. James is enjoying eternal reward. It's a reward that never ends and never runs out. James is experiencing right now eternal glory. He suffered for the building of the kingdom. And it ended in glory, but I will grant you it's a glory that he did not really realize and appreciate and enter into until after he died. And that's the problem. That, it seems to me, is the crux of the issue. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, oh my goodness, that's like the whole deal. I think one of the biggest problems that we have as individual believers, that we have as a church, that we have as the church is that we Christians don't really value that all that much. And certainly not as much as we ought to. You know, all of these next life things, it's just, they're just like, they're not real enough to us to cause and to motivate us enough to invest in the kingdom of God, no matter what that might mean. And we've already heard that sometimes it's, it's not going to be easy. We don't think about eternal life. We don't think about eternal glory. We don't think about eternal reward. We're kind of like, glad I'm going to heaven. 
we'll see what it's like when I get there. But all of these other things just don't penetrate us. I mean, Jesus comes to us with a statement. Think about this statement for a minute because it makes a lot of sense. He comes to us and he says things like, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where the moth comes and the rust destroys you. I mean, you've heard this statement, right? But store it up in heaven. Well, that's brilliant. It's a great idea. I mean, I'm going to be there forever here. I'm just, it's like a blink of an eye. In comparison, it's nothing. It never rusts. It never destroys. Nobody can ever take it away. It doesn't go in the stock market and crash. I mean, none of these things happen to it. It's impenetrable and it's mine forever. It's like, wow, who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't do that? Almost everybody. If we're honest, I know I've been guilty. My goodness. We evaluate everything that happens to us in this life solely in terms of this life as though this life is all that there is. And do you know what happens as a result? Practically speaking, as a result, we, professing believers in Jesus, live like atheists. Like at the end of this life, there's nothing else. And, you know, as a result, there's nothing worth struggling for, and there's nothing worth sacrificing for, and there's nothing worth fighting for, and there's nothing worth giving for, and there's nothing worth dying for. And yet there is. And Luke wants you to know that there is. It's utterly disabling when it comes to building the kingdom. Why? Because building the kingdom at times is great and it's fun and it's joyous and at times tough, difficult. But it's worth struggling for. He's calling us to develop an appreciation for what our Lord is storing up for us as we build his kingdom here. Luke says about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. I mean, ugh. and he killed him with a sword. He cut his head off. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, that he was constantly looking for ways to please, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. My goodness, he's going to cut his head off next. The most prominent apostle. The head in many ways, at least visibly, of the church in that day. And then Luke adds this curious little detail. You think, you know, so what? But but it's really significant. He says, this was during the days of unleavened bread. It means during the days of the Passover. Now, why does he add that on there? Well, I think it's because that's when Jesus was arrested. That's when Jesus suffered. That's when Jesus died, was buried three days, raised from the dead. Luke is very careful and he's very subtle but he's not leaving us without clues. He is calling us on the front end of this story that he is now going to relate to us with really great detail to think about the Lord and to look for the pattern because it's here. He says, when Herod saw that the death of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also so he could cut off his head. And this was during the days of unleavened bread of the Passover. And then he says, when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. There's no getting to this guy, and there's no getting out for him, humanly speaking. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, meaning to execute him publicly. 
And so Peter was kept in prison, but, and then it says, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Why? Now, why are they praying for him? Well, you know, I suppose you could say, well, because we're told that we're to pray for our leaders. Peter is a leader. It's a possible answer. We're commanded to pray, like even generally, and we're told what might happen if, in fact, we do, and I guess that's a possible answer. And it may be part of it. I think they're praying earnestly because there's nothing else they can do. I mean, think about this for a minute. They had no army. They had no leverage. They had no political influence. They, you know, they had no money. They couldn't hire Johnny Cochran and fly him in from California with the dream team so they could do like a 10-month trial on TV that's a nightmare for the world. They couldn't do it. They could do not. God had brought them to a place where they could do nothing but pray. And I think he does that at times. I think he does that for all of us. I think he does that for every person that he calls to be a kingdom builder. At some point, it's like he sweeps into our life and then he sweeps away every resource that we have by which we might deal with a particular situation that he then gives us. And that may be financial, that may be relational, it may be health, it may, you know, it's like, I can't do anything but pray. That's it. And then trust him with the result. Because sometimes the answer is no. We've already seen that. Luke leads with that in this story. James, guys, is dead. Do you not think they held a prayer meeting for James? Just like they will do here and are doing for Peter? Of course they did. And he died. And so sometimes the answer is no. And Luke is letting you know that up front. But here's the problem I think that we have. I don't think any of us have a problem or, or understanding or at least believing that sometimes the answer is no. I think what James is calling us to believe in this story is that sometimes the answer is yes. It's yes. And in this story, it will be yes. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out to kill him on that very night, now watch the details, Peter was sleeping. And if you're going to see the pattern today, you have to understand how sleep is used in the Bible because it's used interchangeably with the idea of death. You know, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He's not talking about people who have taken a nap. He's talking about those who have died. And then he says, you know, and here's what will happen with them. Jesus speaks of Lazarus as being asleep when actually he's dead and his disciples are confused. They're like, you know, leave him alone. Let him rest. That's what he needs. He's not feeling good. And then it says that Jesus then spoke plainly to them and said, Lazarus is dead. If you're going to see the patterns, you have to know the categories. He's sleeping, literally. But hang on to that idea. It says, on that very night, Peter was sleeping, and he's sleeping how? Between two soldiers. So he has one on his right, and he has one on his left. Bound with two chains, meaning around his wrists, likely arms outstretched. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. The word prison means pit. That's the literal translation. And behold, an angel of the Lord came to free him from the pit. 
and stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And then Luke says something that's really interesting. You know, if you think about this within the context of the Bible, he says that the angel struck Peter. And where did he strike him? He struck him on the side. Now, what's interesting about that is that every other instance of this in the Bible where somebody is struck by an angel, it doesn't end well for them. They die, okay? To be struck by an angel is to be killed everywhere but here. And if you don't know that, and you just follow this story all the way through to the end and then start the very next few verses, you get immediately on the tail end of this story, the story of the death of Herod, who is struck, same word, by an angel and dies. So he's letting you know. So now if you're playing along, you're thinking, okay, okay, here's Peter. He's sleeping, metaphorical, for death. He's got somebody on his right hand, somebody on his left hand. He's in bonds, so his arms are in all likelihood outstretched. And he probably looks something like this. Head hanging, arms out. And while he looks like this, he is struck in the side with what would, to anyone else apparently, be a death blow. Following along? It says, The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up. <laughs> Actually, he says, Arise. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, and then he gives us all this detail about his clothes. It's weird. He slows the whole story down with all of this detail about his garments. The angel said to him, dress yourself, meaning put on your inner garments, throw on your underwear, man. And he did so. Put on your sandals, it says, and he did so. Wrap your cloak around you. What is up with this? Put your outer garment on is what he's saying. Why all this about the clothes? Because he wants you to know that when he's hanging there like this, and he's struck in the side, one on his right, one on his left, he's naked. See, that's part of the pattern, too. Get dressed, he says, and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him and did not know what was, that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And now count how many things he has to pass through to get out of the pit. Because Luke counts them. He enumerates them. It says, when they had passed the first, there's one, and the second, there's two, guard, they then came to the third barrier, the third impediment, the third thing that he had to pass through to get out of the pit, which is the iron gate leading into the city. And then it says, and the stone was rolled away. No, it actually, it doesn't say that, but, but you ought to be thinking that. It says, and it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately... The angel left him, and when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Why? Because sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes it's yes. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Sometimes even the names are significant. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, they're praying for his release. Remember that. Earnest prayer being made for him. So they're gathered together at this house praying. And it says, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl, gender being important, came, named Rhoda, to answer and recognizing Peter's voice. 
She knows that it's him by his voice. In her joy, she did not even open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was risen from the dead. No, that's the other story, but it really ought to be striking you at this point. She ran in and reported that Peter was out of the pit, you know, standing at the gate, and they said to her, you're out of your mind. Now think about that. The very thing they're praying for happens, and they're like, you're nuts. Can't be. We don't have any trouble, you know, believing at least that God will say, no, we we have trouble accepting that that's his greater wisdom. But we don't have any trouble believing that God will say, no, we have trouble believing that he says yes. You know, I wonder how many times you and I have been delivered out of things, even quite stunningly at times, and forgotten that we even prayed to God about it. We start crediting a doctor, a lawyer. I mean, lawyers get credits occasionally, you know. I mean, credit ourselves. Lord's going, hey, uh, you give me credit for the nose. What about this? And I wonder how many other things that we could be delivered from if we only cried out to God in prayer. We should pray expectantly. It says, when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, that's how she knows it's him, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was risen from the, well, no. But standing at the gate, and they said to her, you're nuts, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. It's not really him. It's, it couldn't be. It's a ghost. It's a, it's a spirit. It's a... Meanwhile, he's beating on the door while they're arguing over this. It's his angel, but Peter continued knocking, like beckoning to them that they might actually believe that God might actually miraculously deliver someone. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It certainly is not out of the realm of his ability. It says, and when they opened and saw him and were amazed, he continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. And he showed them his nail-pierced hands. Well, actually it says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison And he said to them, tell these things to James, a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, also one of the pillars of that first century church. And to the brothers, he's commissioning them to go and to proclaim the story of his deliverance. And then, of course, he ascends into heaven. It doesn't say that, but look what it does say. It says, then he departed and went to another place. And with one exception, Luke writes him entirely out of the book. End of story for Peter. And you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point is that building the kingdom of God is not easy. It's going to, at times, encounter or cause us to encounter trials and difficulties and suffering, but it's a suffering that ends in eternal glory because that's the pattern. It's the pattern of Jesus, you see, who himself was arrested and put in bonds at the time of the Passover, 
who himself was tried before a guy named Herod, who himself was crucified to please the Jews, with one on his right and one on his left, his arms outstretched, who slept the sleep of death, naked, looking like this. And who, while he looked like that, received what would have been for any living person a death blow when the Roman soldier walked up and just to be sure that he was in fact dead, pierced his side with the spear, likely up under his ribs and into his heart. Shocking, isn't it? Jesus, who was placed into a pit, it's a cave, it's very much like this dungeon. Guarded by Roman soldiers who passed through three days of death. It was delivered by an angel. And who was it that discovered that he was freed from the tomb? It was the women, right? And they ran to the disciples. You remember the story? What did the disciples say? They said, you're crazy. You ladies are out of your mind. So you can imagine the delight, you know, for them when they got proved right. But who was the first to recognize Jesus? I mean, really to, to, to recognize him, to see him. It was a woman named Mary. And how did she know it was him? By his voice. She didn't know until then. When he said her name, Mary, she knew. Later on, I mean, if you follow the story of Christ, his disciples are gathered behind closed doors. You remember that? And he walks in, like even though the door is closed. I don't know how he did that, but can't wait to see the DVD. And what does he do? He motions with his hand. Well, he shows them his hands. He says, go ahead and put your finger in there. He said, I, I, he's saying, I want you to know that I'm physically real. This is not a ghost. This is not an angel. This is not a spirit. This is me physically here. And then he takes him up on the mountain and he says, now I want you to go tell the story of my deliverance. And he goes to another place. And with one or two exceptions, he's written out of the book of Acts. He's in heaven. He's in glory. He's on the throne of the universe from which he is continuing to build his kingdom by his Holy Spirit through people who are awake to his spirit and to what he's doing in this world. But it's not easy. It involves trials and difficulties and suffering and, you know, we don't want any of that. We fashion our life to get rid of all of that. But you know what? Sometimes that's what it takes. And it is time, I think, for the church to say, okay, then if that's what it takes then that's what we will do. And what is our incentive? Is it that which you can see and smell and hear and taste and touch and store up and enjoy in this life? It's not. Sorry. This is a life of faith. It's what you can't see. It's what you can't smell. It's what you can't hear. It's what you can't taste. It's what you can't touch now. And nevertheless, it's what Christ tells us is every bit as real. It's eternal life. It's eternal reward. It is eternal glory. Now compare that to anything that you can have here. What's better? What lasts? We need to stop living like atheists, guys. 
Stop evaluating everything in terms of this life as if this life is all that there is and we need to wake up and realize that the kingdom of God is worth struggling for. It is worth suffering for if that's what it takes. It's worth sacrificing for and as in James' case, and he's proved it, it's worth dying for. We need to wake up. And we need to wake up, I think, also to the great weapon of prayer. We need to stop praying as those who expect to know. When we get to know, we need to receive it as if from the hand of God, don't we? And we need then blindly, because that's faith often, to trust in his greater wisdom, realizing that he sees a picture that we don't. And somehow in his picture, it makes a lot of sense. But we need to pray also, knowing that the answer can also be yes. That we have a great God who delivers his people. And to pray for that deliverance, for that power. And then when the difficulties come, we need to see what Luke sees. We need to see what Peter sees. We need to see that we are being conformed to the image and the pattern of our Lord in which there is some suffering, no doubt, for the building of the kingdom. But that always ends in an inexhaustible and eternal glory. And we need to live like that. Jesus is building his kingdom in this world. He wants to do it through us. It won't be easy, but it ends in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, we praise you for your glory. And I pray, God, that you would give us by faith and by your spirit eyes to behold that which is not visible otherwise in this world. Ears to hear that which is beyond just this life. Hands that can touch that which is intangible. And and let us also taste and see that you and your glory is real and, and is true and is the most precious thing that we can pursue. God, make of us people who are sold out to the building of your kingdom, who find their great delight and their satisfaction in you and in seeing your kingdom advance. Let us long not for the things of this life, but let us long for the next world, the eternal world. We pray all of these things for your glory and for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.